You know, one of the great things I think about being a Christian is that we have this marvelous book called the Bible. And to me, it's very relevant, but I think one of the reasons why many people feel disconnected from the church is they, see, they think that there's no relevance to the church or to the Bible, to their, to their everyday life. And so today what I want to talk about is something I think is very practical. And the amazing thing about this topic, it isn't the topic itself, but it's the fact that the topic was addressed 2,000 years ago. And so since it's Valentine's weekend, what I thought I'd do is I'd talk about how to stay in love. Now, that's not falling in love. That's pretty easy. But staying in love. And if you have a pulse, then you have all the requirements for falling in love. In fact, I think you probably, for all of us, uh, we've fallen in love more than one time in our life. You've probably fallen in love with people you've never met before. Perhaps uh, it was Adam Levine or David Beckham, uh, just speaking on behalf of my daughters. Or maybe it was uh, Marianne of Gilligan's Island. That was my love. Uh, but falling in love is just an extremely easy thing to do. But staying in love, that is entirely different. And I think a question that all of us probably have to ask at one point in our lives is, is it possible for two people to actually not only fall in love, but to stay in love for a lifetime? And the interesting thing about it is, regardless of how dysfunctional your past is, regardless of maybe how many times you've been married, regardless of, of how bad your parents' relationship was, or regardless of how good their relationship was, regardless of what you've seen or what our culture says, if I were to answer that question this morning, is it possible to stay in love? And I told you it's impossible for two people to fall in love and, and to stay in love forever. It's hopeless. There's not even, you shouldn't even try. There's no point in it. People don't fall in love and stay in love forever. And regardless of the statistics that I could give you about that, regardless of the stories that I could tell you, you wouldn't believe me. And the reason is that there's something in all of us that believes that if we could just find the right person or if we could just be the right person, we believe that we have the potential to fall in love with someone and to stay in love with them forever. And regardless of what you've experienced, I think there's something in you that just doesn't want to give up that hope or that desire. And I think that that's, uh, that desire and that, that, that hope is a reflection of the image of God in you. And it's, it's not enough to have a bunch of golfing buddies. That's a lot of fun, but it doesn't quite get it done. And it's not enough to have some girlfriends you can spend the weekend with. That is fun, but it doesn't get it done. And, and it's, you know, it's fun to reconnect with fraternity and sorority people years after you've graduated, but that doesn't quite get it done. And there's something, I think, in all this that wants to believe that there's one special somebody, a soulmate, that you do life with. There's got to be an intimacy and that's so special. You want to believe that it's possible for you to enter into a relationship like that and that somehow it could last forever. And regardless of what you see and the cynicism of our culture, I think there's something in all of us, even beyond our woundedness, that wants to believe, for me, it's possible. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope you'll get this point. That little spark of desire that's inside of you, that is a divine spark. And, and that is in every single person. God put it in you. He created you for that. And the question is, how do you get it? Because falling into love 
only requires a pulse, but staying in love requires a plan. And it's an interesting thing to me that Jesus addressed this subject, and he did it in a very broad sense. And I want you to take some of the words of Jesus today and also some of the words of the Apostle Paul, and I want to direct them specifically to this issue of romantic love. And if you're in a relationship, this is going to be great. And if you're hoping to get in one, take notes. And if you're married and things aren't going so well, there's hope. And if you're married and things are going great, then you're going to find yourself nodding and going to your partner. We do that. And if you've been in a marriage that's failed for whatever reason... I think there's something here for you too, and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to bring his comfort and his grace. And then I want to ask you if you would do me a favor, you who have been in marriages that have ended. I want you to pray for me that I would be able to try to help others make their love last. Okay, one day Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, Hey guys, I am going to give you a brand new commandment. So Matthew and John probably got out their pads because they were recording. No. And, and, and they go, okay, go slow, Jesus. We're writing this down. And so here's what Jesus says in John 13, 34. A brand new commandment I give you, I want you to love one another. Now, I'm just guessing that his disciples probably went, I think we've heard this one before. You know, Jesus says, I want you to love one another. But the brilliance of that statement is that Jesus took a word that was commonly used as a noun, Love, something you fall into, love, and he used it as a verb. He gave the command, and then he says, I proactively want you to verb one another, to to love one another. And from now on, I want you to make love a verb. And then he took it a step further. Now, here's the model, he says. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. Not the way that you've been loved by people, not the way you've been loved by an ex-spouse, not the way you've been loved by an absentee father, not the way you were loved by your grandmother. He said, I want you to take your cue from me, and I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. And then along comes this, this fellow by the name of Paul, Apostle Paul. And having spent time with Matthew and John and Peter and Andrew and James and and all these other people, he kind of discovered the richness of how Jesus really loved people. And so he writes a letter to the the Christians at Philippi. And, And he says, basically, I want to explain to you how you're supposed to love each other. And I want to explain to you what it looks like in light of the fact that Jesus loved us first. And so in a very descriptive way, what Paul does is he gives us a picture of what love looks like as we follow how Jesus loved. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. I don't know if you've ever been around couples. I've been around a few who, you know, they've been married 40, 30, 40 years, and they're just so in love with each other, you know. And they, 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 at least they still seem to be in love. They're giddy, you know. At times you want to say, hey, guys, get a room. I mean, you've, you've been married for all these years, you know. And this, this thing is still going. And you look at that, and it's so unique. And you think, wow, I hope someday that that might be me and Kathy uh, as we get into our 70s. I was going to say 60s. I am 60s. But into our 70s and 80s, uh, you know. And, uh, and then when you spend time with couples like this, and you begin to scratch the surface, and you look for what's going on, you discover discover that these couples are doing the exact things that the Apostle Paul talks about when he describes the way that Jesus loves us. 
So Philippians 2 is our main text today. I put it in your, your study notes. I hope you have. If you don't, take your Bible and turn to Philippians 2. Paul gives us this account of what it looks like to really take seriously Jesus' command to love. To love our fiancé, to love our spouse, to love the one that we're in relationship with, to love that person like Jesus loved us. So, hey, by the way, uh, if I could just give a little caveat here, I just want to tell you right up front, what we're going to talk about is extremely challenging. And if you find yourself pushing back from the things that I'm going to tell you today, I understand why you're pushing back. And that's why you don't find many relationships like this, because on the surface, it just seems to be so self-sacrificial. But when you spend time with people who have been together for many, many, many years, and they still have that spark, and in your heart, you're thinking, I want some of that. I I don't want to just be a roommate. I want that kind of intimacy and that kind of relationship. So here's what it looks like, Philippians 2.3. We're going to jump right into the practical. Do nothing. By the way, nothing means no thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And in order to stay in love, and for the love to remain in your relationship with the person that you're in love with, Paul says, I want you to get rid of all selfishness. I don't want you to do anything that would in any overt way put you above the other person. I want you to get rid of the cynical side of your conversation I want you to watch your words. Literally in the Greek it says, I want you, I don't want you to compete with each other. And then he gets to a bigger idea. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. We're going to come back to that word, and then then here's the really big idea. Value yourselves, value others above yourselves. I love one of the translations that says, considers others as more important than yourself. Now think about that for a minute. Consider others as more important than yourself. In your relationship, and we're looking specifically at romantic relationships this morning, in those relationships, Paul says, I want you to treat your partner as if they really are more important than you are. Now this is something we all know how to do. I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where you were not the most important person in the room. I I was at a wedding recently. And there was an environment where I knew I wasn't the most important person in the room. <laughs> I walked into church and nobody stood up. <laughs> but the bride walked into church and everybody stood up because I wasn't the most important person in the room. So all of us know what that's about. Maybe you've had your boss over for dinner or beforehand you sat down with your kids or maybe you were the kid and your dad sent you, set you down and he said, all right, if you want to live to see tomorrow... Here's what's going on here tonight at the dinner table, because we're going to have someone here who is more important than your mom or your dad. We all know how to act when there's somebody who's more important around us. It's a real simple word. It's called we defer to them. You treat them as if they're the most important person in the room, because in that environment, you actually believe they're the most important person in the room. And Paul says, in your relationship, you you treat that person as if they really are more important or of greater value than you are. Now, here's where the first pushback comes and the objection. And I understand it. You say, wait a second. You know, my spouse, my husband or my wife, my fiance. They have no greater intrinsic value than I do, and we are all equal in the sight of God. 
I mean, that's in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? So, But Paul would say to that, oh, that's okay. That's okay if you want a roommate, great. If you want a contract relationship, great. But if you want a best friend relationship, that's great. But if you want to love like Jesus loves, then you've got to make a decision. And the decision isn't, are you or, or are they of greater value than you? But the decision is, will you treat them as if they're of greater value than you are? Now, if we just stopped here and I said, everybody home, and I said, listen, for the next two days, forget a week, forget a lifetime. Just for the next two days, would you treat your spouse in every single situation as if they were actually more important than you? And I think for many of you in this room, that could change your relationship. But the pushback is, oh, I don't know if I could do that. Now, don't answer this question out loud or not, because it'll be a secret. But wouldn't you love to be treated that way? I'll push a little further. Don't you think sometimes you deserve to be treated that way? You know, men, you come home and you say, well, I'm the most important person in the world, in the room, because I'm dad. I'm the breadwinner. I'm the biggest. I'm the strongest. Where's my drink? Where's my paper? You know. And see, sometimes we think that way. And Jesus says, okay, that's fine. You're the caveman. But... If you want to maintain an irresistible passion in the relationship, then you treat the other person as if they really are more valuable than you are. And by the way, I want to tell you that this is one of those sermons where I know exactly what to do. I just don't do it all the time. Okay. But what a game changer that would be in many relationships if people started treating people like that. Imagine the difference it might make in your life. Paul says, that's what I want you to do, because by the way, that's what Jesus did for you. And then he goes on in Philippians 2.4, he says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And this is really hard for me, because what this verse says is, is that I'm not supposed to be consumed with what interests me. I'm supposed to be consumed with what interests Kathy. Now, here's where the problem is for me, and I'll try to best the best I know to tell you this. The problem is I'm not interested in what she's interested in. I'm interested in what interests me. Okay. And because the things that are interesting to her are not interesting to, to me. Okay. <laughs> to me. Okay. Everybody understands that. Okay. Paul says, I'm talking to you about making love a verb. I'm talking about doing something that the average person would not do. I'm talking about loving like Jesus loved. So I want you to figure out whatever it is that your spouse is interested in. I want you to proactively express interest in that. I'm glad my wife's out of town because uh, we have had this. We've had a problem recently. My wife loves to garden. And I'm not interested in gardening. And here's why, because then I'm going to have to help. Don't let that leave the room. <laughs> okay. I figure we can't grow coffee, so why have a garden? So, uh, but in our marriage, in our marriage, this is an example of, okay, Bill, remember, the issue is not the garden. Now, let me tell you a little about Relationships. Every relationship has a garden in it. Every relationship has something that just does not hold any interest to you. And God says, look, I want you to love that person. 
Like I loved you, and I want you to express interest in the things that don't interest you. And if you do, there's a payoff, because when people do that, you've laid the groundwork, not just for a roommate, and not just to stay married, but to stay in love. I want to ask you this, and then we're moving on. What is the garden in your relationship this morning? What is it? Because it will destroy the thing that you really want the most. And the thing I believe you want the most is that 30 years from now, you don't want to just have fallen in love. You want to stay in love. Now, Paul, I think it's as if he's reading our minds. He says, wait a minute, we might be going a little too far, too fast. So he backs up and he begins to give us a kind of theological background of why he's saying all this. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another... And this is broad as everybody, though we're just taking it about, talking about romantic relationships this morning. Have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Apostle Paul says there's a bigger picture here. I want you to approach your relationship with that person that you're in love with the same way that Jesus approached his relationship with you. And I want you to have that same mindset or that same attitude. I want you to have the same perspective on that person that Jesus Christ had on you. And then he gives us some really specific things. Verse 6, who, and the who is Jesus in this verse, who being in very nature God, like when Jesus was on earth, he was God in a body. He did not consider equality with God. In other words, he didn't consider that, that he was equal to God. Therefore, you know, I have some advantages. It says something to be used to his own advantage. Another translation says, and I love this, He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped hold of. Now that's astounding because when you think about the fact that when Jesus was here on earth, he never leveraged the fact that he was Jesus for his own sake. Never. Even though he's God in a body, he didn't walk into the restaurant and say, we'd like that table over there because I'm God. He didn't leverage his power. He never leveraged his position for his own sake. Another way of saying this is he never pushed the God button. He never played the God card. He never leveraged who he actually was for the sake of anything that would benefit him personally. Paul says, oh yeah, by the way, that's what I want you to do in your relationships. I know you're the man, but don't play the man card in relationship." I know you what you deserve, but don't play the I deserve it card in relationship. I know what you think you have coming to you, but don't play the this is what I have coming to me card in relationship. Because the model is our Savior. And even though he was very nature God, he never played the God card. I think this is a revolutionary idea and and light, especially of what our culture teaches us. And if that wasn't enough, verse 7 goes on to contrast this, and it says, Rather, he made himself nothing. Another translation you may be familiar with says, he emptied himself. And I love that translation because it's the opposite phrase of everything that goes on in our culture today. You hear about, they say about a person, he's full of himself or she's full of herself. Paul says Jesus did just the opposite. He emptied himself. In the middle of verse 7, it says, By taking the very nature of a servant, so he chose the role of servant, being made in human likeness, which must have been appalling to the angels. Could you imagine? Jesus says, I'm going down to earth to be a human. And they go, you're going to do what? A human? Seriously? Philippians 2.8, and here's the big, big idea. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself 
hey, listen, if you've checked out of the message so far, just for the next 30 minutes, would you check back in? Not 30 minutes, 30 seconds, don't worry. 30 seconds. <laughs> I think this is the most dynamic, powerful, relational principle in the world. He made a decision. That phrase, he humbled himself, means that Jesus Christ chose he made a decision to place himself under someone else. And that's what it means to humble to yourself, to, to submit, to play the number two position. Jesus chose. He didn't have to. He chose to humble himself. And let me tell you what you'll find in great relationships. You will find two people who understand that the goal is not to decide who submits to who. The goal is for both people to submit to one another. You know, mutual submission, I think, is the difference in successful relationships, especially romantic relationships. I mean, you find me a culture, it could be a business culture, it could be a church culture, it could be a family culture, where people understand what mutual submission really is. They choose to submit to the people around them. And I will show you an extraordinarily effective and efficient and healthy organization or family. In fact, the famous verse in the Bible that says for women to submit to husbands... You know that verse that uh, men especially like to talk about? The verse right before it is Ephesians 5.21, and it says, Submit to one another for the Lord's sake. It's mutual submission. And Paul says, now look, I want you to treat each other the way that Jesus treated you. What did he do? He humbled himself. He chose to submit himself. To whom? To me. To you, to the human race. And then this next word in verse 8 is, is a powerful word, by. In other words, here's what it looked like. And if I were to ask you in your relationship, what would it look like for you to submit to your husband, or what would it look like for you to submit to your wife, you'd say, well, to submit to my wife, I need to fill in the blank. Or to submit to my husband, I need to, I probably need to fill in the blank. And you could come up with all kinds of things, and some of them would seem painful, and you'd think about it, and you'd say, I don't know if I like mutual submission. Paul says, let me just put it in a broader context. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient, not to a budget and not to being home on time for dinner, but to death, even death on the cross. And the question is, and I don't think you want to ask it is, how far do you take this? Death on a cross. I think I'll just buy the I'll be home early for dinner uh, or I'll just work on the budget. Uh, how far do you take this? What does it look like to put her first? And what does it look like to put him first? And it's really, if it's anything, it, I guess it's short of death because that's the standard by which we've been called to. And as horrible and as extreme as this may sound, when you find people who have been together for a long, long time and they're still crazy about each other, you find that these two have discovered, maybe on their own or maybe it was with some context of spirituality, the power of mutual submission and of putting one another first. And here's the kind of bottom line and pull it together here. I don't really know how to describe this that well and... 
I know a couple of our elders are sitting here, so when I make this statement, it's going to sound very heretical. But if you let me unpack it, I think you'll get it. I think Paul is saying here, in a sense, that God had a dilemma. And I don't really think that God has dilemmas. (laughs) But that's the best way I can describe it. God's dilemma when he sent Jesus into the world is Jesus could have gotten everything he deserved or he could have gotten everything he wanted. Everything he deserved, he's Jesus. He's got all the power. He's got the front row seats. He, he, everybody needs to honor him. He's number one. He could use his miracles to get back at Pilate. He could destroy Rome. There are all kinds of things that Jesus could have done with his power. He could either get everything he deserved honor and glory and praise or he could get what he really wanted but he couldn't have it both ways and what he really wanted and this is astounding so if you're an unchurched person trying to figure out the Jesus part here it is what God wanted most of all is he wanted not the honor and the glory and the praise that he deserved but he wanted the relationship with you And Jesus knew that he couldn't get what he deserved and also get what he wanted. And what he wanted more than what he deserved was to deal with the sin issue that stood between us and God so that we could have a growing relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And the only way to initiate and to protect the relationship was to give up what he deserved in order to become a servant and to humble himself and to make your interests more important than his interests. And do you know what your greatest issue is? It's the sin issue. It's what breaks your relationship with God. And I can tell you this. Jesus had no interest in the sin issue. Except it was the only way to initiate a relationship with you and with me. And and so he made our sin issue a greater issue for him. It was his priority. He couldn't have it both ways. He opted for the relationship rather than getting what he deserved. And in marriage, and here's what I've discovered, that the romantic relationships are most important to us. We can't have it both ways. So I can go home and I can demand that I get my way and I can ruin the relationship, or I can lead hard into the relationship and give up getting my way. But at the end of the day, I'll have ultimately what I really want the most, and that's the relationship. So the challenge for us who believe in Jesus, and he's our Savior, our Lord. The challenge for those of us who have said yes to him is will we make love a verb, and will we, and I haven't even challenged us to love everybody. (laughs) That's another week. I'm just talking about the people that are most important in your life right now. Will you be willing to love your husbands? Will you be willing to love your wives? Or at least to begin to love them the way that Jesus loved you. And that's the standard. That's the game changer. And by the way, it's the way that you make sure that years and years from now, you're still not simply together, but that you're still in love. You fall in love, but you stay in love by making a verb, making love a verb, and by learning to love the way that Jesus did. Let's pray together. Oh, God. I know my words are always inadequate to share Jesus the way he needs to be seen. So by your Holy Spirit, would you make these things that we've talked about today complete in the minds and hearts of those who've heard these dear people.
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.